Okay. Can you in the room here hear me, hear me okay? <laughs> All right. Okay. Uh, let's go ahead and bring up the video. Hello, everybody watching. Hello, everybody in the room. I've already welcomed you, of course, and given you, given you a spiel. But hello, everybody watching. Hopefully, you can see and hear this okay. If not, text me or um, Lydia or Lindsay or Tina or Liz, whoever else is here. <laughs> they'll get the text and they'll say, hey, something's wrong, um, and we'll, we'll be able to fix it for you. So welcome, everybody. Um, we are uh, this week in Acts 2, verses 1 to 41. We're not going through the whole book of Acts. We're going to um, save the rest of it for next week. Um, uh, so go ahead and open your Bibles to Acts 2. And before we start, let's go ahead and just... Um, uh, oh, actually, I have one thing to say um, before we pray. We in the room here are going to pause and discuss and talk. You know, I'll share some things. Someone will have a question or a comment. Um, and we'll be, we'll be pausing to do that and whatever. Anybody who's watching, if you need to, pause it. I think you'll be able to pause it and, and discuss something. This is usually what, what happens in our home fellowships, right? Where we, we hear a teaching, we discuss something, we're having a conversation. What I don't want is for you watching to think that you have to just watch and not have a conversation as well. So if, if, if you need to, go ahead and pause uh, so that you can talk with your groups about what it is you're learning. Is that Make sense? And I'm pretty sure you'll be able to do that. If not, I apologize. Um, uh, but, but that's what we'll be doing here, and we want you to do the same with the people you're with in your homes. So um, this is the first time we're trying this. We're actually in a classroom here at the uh, church building at, at uh, Southeast, um, and uh, we're still trying to figure out the Internet connection to make sure that it's a high-speed one so that we can do this from other places in the building. Uh, but we're just going to give it a shot here. Um, you may hear children in the background. There are children in the room with us because that's kind of what we want to have happen is for children to be around us while we, while we do this, while we talk and, and dig into the Word. So, um, Okay, if that's, if that's it, let me go ahead and pray, and we'll get into Acts 2. Father, we thank you for today, your Shabbat, uh, for this time where we can come together safely um, and with our families to discuss, to learn, to teach each other, to grow, uh, to equip, to be equipped, to go out into the world and be your witnesses, uh, be those who, who talk about the great things that God has done as we walk in the Spirit um, in this world, a world that is in so desperate need of your light, your truth, and your ways. So we, we thank you for the, this opportunity. Uh, I, bless, I ask you to bless all of the home fellowships, people listening and watching this morning. Bless those who, who are ill and can't be with us, uh, that they may be encouraged. Uh, and we just thank you. We thank you so much. We praise you. We're so grateful for this, for our community, uh, and for this time. And it's in Yeshua's name I pray. Amen. All right. So we're in Acts 2, but let's go ahead. I want to do a quick review of what we, what we talked about, or what I, I talked about last week uh, briefly, and then we'll get into this week's text. Uh, so there were two terms, there were two words that we learned. Any of you remember what the words are? Um, two Greek words. One was the, uh, the word for witnesses. Do you remember that? Martures, martures for witnesses. Uh, the Hebrew equivalent is uh, the word ud, which means to repeat or to do again and again. Martures is the word that we, that we then get martyr from, because a martyr is someone who would do something again and again that was against the popular culture, the, the leadership at the time. So a martyr was someone who was martures, who was repeating and witnessing and, and doing the things that, uh, that, were, that were right. Martures. The second word, baptisma. Baptisma, of course, is submersion in, into living water. And living water, of course, we know is water that is flowing, naturally flowing. Um, it was a common practice. Baptism was a common practice. It wasn't a, it wasn't a sacrament. Um, and it symbolized the, the move from one state to another. Uh, one, one, whether moving from being single to being married, uh, whether from being childless to having a child, 
starting a new profession, you would go and you would go to the living water in a mikvah and you would immerse yourself. So this was a common practice that was not instituted by Yeshua uh, or the apostles of the day. It wasn't, it wasn't anything new. So Marturis and Baptisma. Uh, from the text, we learned about how uh, after Yeshua had presented himself to many apostles and before he ascended, he had instructed him, them to stay in Jerusalem. Uh, they were there to wait to receive the Holy Spirit, the Ruach HaKodesh, and to be close to one another as they prepared for a reality without Yeshua's physical presence. This was a jarring time, right? So they had him with them. He was crucified, buried. They thought he was gone. Then he came back. He, uh, he was resurrected. So they're like, oh, we have him back now. But then he ascended uh, and left again. So this is quite jarring what was happening to them. So they needed to be together to lean on each other uh, as they're preparing for this next phase of a world where the physical presence of Yeshua is not, uh, is not there. His disciples asked him about a chief concern of theirs, which was the kingdom being restored to Israel, to which Yeshua replied that it is not to be their concern right now, right? This is, don't worry about that. So he didn't say it wasn't going to happen, he didn't say when it was going to happen. We presume that it's going to happen. This is a chief concern, right? Uh, in two places, we saw how the disciples were Torah and Sabbath observant. One in the mention of the Sabbath day's journey, which would mean nothing to, to a, a, anyone who wasn't Sabbath observant, what that means. Um, and if you need to know what that means, you can go back to the previous teaching and where I describe what a Sabbath day's journey is. And they're being continually in prayer, referencing the three times a day an observant Jew would be in the temple for prayer. So continually in prayer, we might think of, does that mean we have to pray every second of every minute of every hour of every day? No. Continually in prayer, that language means that they were in the temple. They were praying uh, the, the, the three times each day. And then finally, we see the assembly of disciples navigate the decision about what to do with the seat left vacant by Yehuda Ishkriot, uh, Judas Iscariot, uh, ultimately selecting Matthias by lot. So this was the first, one of the first things they were having to do as a community to figure out, okay, what is the, what is the halakha here? What is the way in which we walk this out? What's the, what's the right path to fill this vacant seat? So they discussed... And then Peter said, okay, here's, here's what we're going to do. I cast lots, and they picked their, their 12th man. Um, some, some food we were chewing on was that we learned the importance of, of patience. When we lack patience, our discipline, our discipline in sanctifying our time suffers. If we want something to happen now, how we spend our time in holy ways is, is, is influenced by that need to have things happen now. Um, and, and our impatience leads us to choose to use our time in ways that distract from our witness to the world as well. Which is what Yeshua was telling the, these, these disciples. Like, yes, okay, don't worry about that. You be witnesses. You go out and... and Share, uh, share the truth, be light to, to the people. And secondly, we also learned the value of prayer and study, uh, to lean into these three daily times of prayer, beginning and ending your days in prayer, praying in the middle of your days, which are the three times of prayer, morning, afternoon, and evening. Um, and like the disciples devote themselves to study and discussion and dispute, you know, debate and arguing, uh, uh, Contrasting passages with each other, you know, it requires you to really sink your teeth in and do that. They, these were the very conversations that set in motion the way in which the messianic calling is walked out. So we can, we can look at them as an example for that. Okay, so that's background uh, for last week's lesson. Let's turn our attention now to Acts 2. Um, and we've got two more words, uh, two more terms here. Um, the first one is Pentecoste, which is how you pronounce it in the Greek, but is, it is Pentecost, of course. That, that word in Greek means 50th, right? 50th, uh, and it occurs in uh, chapter 2, verse 1. This word Pentecoste 
happens three times in the Greek scriptures, two times in Acts, and one time in 1 Corinthians. It means 50th. It is the 50th day from the beginning of Passover, uh, which when you think about it, so, you know, Pentecost uh, is, means 50th. If, if you don't understand what that means, that's a very strange name for a very important day, it's fi- the 50th day. If you're thinking of it as, as, uh, as only that Pentecost is the day in which the Holy Spirit was given, then why is it called 50th? So just something to think about. It's, it's derivative, is, I guess what I'm saying. The Hebrew, of course, is Shavuot, which means weeks, referencing the seven weeks that happen from the time of uh, Passover, uh, where we're, counted to command, or we're commanded to count the days uh, in Leviticus 23, that begin the day after Passover. We, we begin accounting, uh, and the 50th day is Shavuot, or Pentecost. Um, and I'll be using the name Shavuot uh, when I'm reading from this uh, passage in the New American Standard, uh, uh, so just don't be confused by that, because um, that's, that's the proper name for the day. And the second word is Sothesatai, so thes, so which is in chapter 2, verse 21, it means will be rescued. So the verse, uh, verse 21 is, and it shall be that everyone who calls in the name of the Lord shall be rescued. That's the word sothesatai. Um, the root, the Greek root is sodzo, is to be rescued, preserved, escaped from danger uh, or destruction. Okay. The Hebrew equivalent is yimalet, which means to slip away or to escape. And we find this in Joel chapter 2, verse 32. So if, if you're picturing it, it is a, it is a getting, getting away. It is a getting out of where it is that danger is present or destruction may happen. That's, that's the context. That's the picture we can think of um, as, we, as we look at this word. Um, okay, so those are the two words, Pentecoste and Sotisatai. Before I read the text, I'm just going to go over here and make sure that the live stream is working good. Okay, so just pause right there. Okay. So we're going to be stopping at verse 41. Um, I'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible. And as I usually do, I'm going to be replacing some of the words here with the words that we use, Yeshua, uh, Mashiach, Shavuot, some of those things. I'll be, I'll be replacing those uh, as I read through it. So I'm going to go ahead and read through the text now. This is... Acts 2, verses 1 to 41. And when the day of Shavuot had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing ruach wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there, and there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves. And they rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the ruach hakodesh, the Holy Spirit, and began to speak with other tongues as the Ruach uh, was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were bewildered because they were each one hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and marveled saying, why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own languages speaking the mighty deeds of God. 
And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, They are full of sweet wine. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my Ruach upon all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even upon my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my Ruach, and they will prophesy. And I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be rescued. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Yeshua the Notsri, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man delivered up to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put to death. And God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, I was always beholding the Lord in my presence, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh, my flesh also will abide in hope, because thou will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants upon his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did, he flesh, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Yeshua Adonai raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of Adonai, and having received from the Father the promise of the Ruach HaKodesh, he has poured forth this which you uh, both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that Adonai has made him both master and Messiah, this Yeshua whom you crucified. And when they heard, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Yeshua Messiah for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as Adonai our God shall, be, or shall call to himself. And with many words, many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be rescued from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. All right, so let's go back to the first verse, and I'm going to go through and uh, uh, pull out some things from the verses. Uh, not every verse, but most Maybe not even most of the verses, but some things that are, I think, important for us to, to understand. So the first verse, and when the day of Shavuot had come, they were all together in one place. Stop. The story in Acts 2 illustrates the early disciples of Yeshua were still engaged in the biblical calendar. Okay? They were keeping Adonai's appointed times as prescribed by the Torah of Moses. They remained Torah observant even after the resurrection and ascension of their master. So their rabbi is gone, but they were still doing it. So it wasn't that they were doing it because he was here, or that he was doing it. That these are these are people who are observant. Christian tradition would later discard the biblical calendar with its weekly Sabbaths and holy days, but this was not the reality of the early disciples. And I'm preaching to the choir here. <laughs> I'm seeing nodding. Yes, we we know this. Yeah. Um, the day of Pentecost has become associated, I think, primarily, if not only, with the giving of the Holy Spirit. And this Pentecost is, this one here in this, in this verse, 
is essentially the first Pentecost. Um, I, I, I saw this as I was researching and seeing lots of things being written about how there is Shavuot, but then there's Pentecost. These are two different things. Pentecost is the day that the Holy Spirit was given. Shavuot is something that the Jews do, right? Okay. So there's a, there's a distinction that was made uh, at some point. Um, Pentecost, it means the same things. Pentecost is the Greek uh, equivalent of Shavuot. Shavuot means weeks, which references the seven weeks, 49 days. Mm-hmm. Pentecost means 50th, the 50th day. So it's, it's basically, it's this, it is the same thing. Yeah, it's the same thing, yeah. Um, this is, of course, incorrect. Uh, Shavuot is inseparable from Passover. And this Shavuot is as important as the beginning or as the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. Now, tradition tells us that Shavuot is when we uh, memorialize the giving of the Torah on Mount Sinai. Um, it is believed that that, is, that, that, that that was on Shavuot that the giving of the Torah happened. And so ask any, ask any Jew and they'll tell you, yes, Shavuot is about remembering the giving of the Torah on Mount Sinai. And, and we'll talk a little bit about that and the giving of the Holy Spirit too a little later on and how they are exactly the same. It's, it's really remarkable. Okay. <clears throat> that they were together in one place, here in the first verse, alludes not, uh, alludes not to the upper room. Now, we know that the upper room was big because the upper room could, could hold about 120 people, we read in the previous chapter. But it wasn't so big that it could hold thousands because <laughs> we know that 3,000 came to, to faith that day. So it was, they were not in the upper room when this happened, as tradition would tell us. That's kind of how we've uh, been taught. It's actually the temple. They were in the temple, um, in temple courts. Deuteronomy 16, verse 16, instructs all men of Israel to present themselves before Adonai in the place which he chooses, i.e., the temple, uh, on the day of Shavuot. And since they were in Jerusalem and they're already observant in, in being in the temple for prayers, how much more likely would they be to be in the temple for the first day of Shavuot, a very, very important day. So we know that they, that they were there. Um, as we'll see a bit further down, only in the temple courts would such a large, diverse gathering of people assemble on Shavuot, where there were also enough pools of water to accommodate mass immersions. Right? First one. Okay, now on, on to verse 2. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the, the, the whole house where they were sitting. House here, the Greek word for house is oikos, and, it's, and it is an ambiguous term that can mean any, any kind of building, um, whether it's a house or a, a, a barn or a, a, a structure of whatever. It, it is a, it's an ambiguous term. And, uh, but also we know in, in the rabbinic literature that the temple is called what? The house. Habayit. It is called the house. Uh, so I, I can understand why... Christian tradition has, has led us to believe that this was in the upper room because it mentions a house, a whole house, and, we, and they were in the upper room in the previous chapter. But all signs are really pointing to this happening in the temple. Um, and there appeared to them tongues as a fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Ruach HaKodesh and began to speak with other tongues as the Ruach was giving them utterance. It's important to remember here that the, the Hebrew word for language is also the word for tongue, which is, do you remember? It starts with a lamed, la, lashon, lashon, lashon hara, evil speech, evil tongue, lashon kadosh, holy, holy language, holy tongue. So the same language for the same word for language is a, is the word for tongue. The shown the spirit appears as tongues of fire because the spirit will enable the apostles to fluently speak in languages they did not otherwise know. So that that's where we get the connection. There is from that Hebrew word lashon, which means the same thing. Um, I guess later on in in our English we would probably think of the same thing too. Tongues. There, there's a bit of an association of a tongue meaning a language, but it's not commonplace to, to, to refer to it as that. Um, the Semitic idiom is preserved here in the Hebrew if we translate it as 
the Lashona of fire rested on them, and they began speaking other Lashona. So there, there is a, a connection between these, the, the tongue of fire, the language of fire, you could even call it, and the language they speak. Interesting, huh? Uh, now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, this is verse 5, devout men from every nation under heaven. Here the Greek word for devout, uh, eulabis, literally means holding fast, i.e. observant to Jewish traditions. How they were devout was that they held fast to, to the, uh, the ways in which to, be, uh, to do their faith. And this is demonstrated by the fact that they're present in Jerusalem for the assembly of Shavuot. They came here. They're they're in Jerusalem at this time. They hold fast. Verse 6, And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were bewildered, because they were each one hearing them speak in his own language. Again, we see here how it makes more sense that disciples were in the temple courts, where the multitude of people could have heard and come together near where the sound had taken place. Um, I've seen pictures and videos of uh, this happening in an upper room and then a whole bunch of people like going through the city to get to this little house. It's just like, I mean, could that have happened? I, I guess it's possible, but it just doesn't make sense. Everything else just kind of points to it being in the temple. So anyway. How does the chosen portray it? <laughs> uh, yeah. Answer that question in the comments. <laughs> I don't remember. Is that even? Not, you, yeah, where you? That's. You don't think they're talking about that? Okay, probably not. <laughs> but that is authoritative, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, where was it? Uh, verse seven. Okay, so I'm going to skip down uh, to verse uh, eleven. Two verse eleven. Okay. We hear them in our tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of Adonai. The purpose of speaking in tongues, speaking in other languages, is what? To recount the mighty deeds of God, right? Here we see, we hear them speaking in tongues of the mighty deeds of Adonai. This is the witness. This is the witness of God, right? Speaking in other languages is so that we can tell people what God has done. Okay, let's, let's be clear about that. Um, moving down, we'll go to verse 15. Okay, so they, uh, oh no, I'm sorry, uh, moving back up. Uh, and they continued in amazement and greatly perplexed, this is verse 12, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, they are full of sweet wine. And then moving down to 15, Peter says, For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is the third hour of the day. Again, this is, this is referencing um, holding fast to the prayer times. The third hour of the day corresponds to the time of the morning prayer when an observant Jew may be presumed to be sober. This is in the ancient rabbinic literature. You can, you can presume someone is sober by the, by the first prayer time. You can't presume he's going to be sober by the second prayer time or the third prayer time. It's just like, it's like you know, people are people, right? But this is the third hour. So like him just saying that, no, they're not drunk. This is the third hour means that they're not going to be, they're, they're going to be, basically they fast. You know, breakfast is, is, is breaking fast, right? They're praying before they break fast. So this is the third hour. They haven't even eaten yet. Like nothing has come into them because they are observant. So they couldn't be unless, unless they're just not observant Jews. Then, then, then they're doing something wrong. But, so this is, again, highlighting how these men were observant. They were, they, were, they were fasting in that morning. They hadn't eaten or drinking anything yet when this was happening. So this is all happening in the, in the early morning. Right? Yeah. Yes, yes, there is. Yeah, there's, there, there, it is, this is basically undoing what was done at Babel, where, where, where languages were introduced to confuse people, right? Because of the, the hubris and the arrogance of the people, languages were came, came to confuse. But here, languages are, are, are gifted 
to bring clarity so that people know the truth, right? So this, that's great. This is an undoing of Babel, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right, exactly. There, there is a purpose to it. If you go back to verse 4, I think this is, this is an important, important point. In verse 4 it says, And they were filled with the Ruach HaKodesh and began to speak with other tongues as the Ruach was giving them utterance. So we could say there that being filled with the Spirit doesn't mean you will speak in other languages. The Ruach was giving them utterance. The Ruach was, uh, was making a decision that, the, that these individuals are going to be able to speak in tongues, speak in other languages. It wasn't a because A, then B. It was they were filled with the Spirit. And also, the Spirit gave them utterance, uh, gave them, uh, began, they began to speak with other tongues as the Ruach was giving them utterance. So it was like the Ruach, the Spirit can withhold that or give it as, as necessary. And in this moment, it was necessary for many reasons. Undoing what was done at Babel. The, the, the correlation between this and the giving of the Torah, as we'll see a bit later on. <clears throat> okay, so we went through verse 15. Let's go down um, in verse, uh, pick up a 16. But this is what the spoken, what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, Adonai says, that I will pour forth of my ruach upon all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. This is interesting because it's backwards. It's kind of upside down. Who is it that is prophesying? The old wise men? No, it's the sons and daughters. It's children. Children will be prophesying. And then who is dreaming dreams? Which So if you, if you think of it, prophesying, visions, dream dreams. There's a, there's a hierarchy of value in these in, in uh, rabbinic thinking. Prophesying, top of the heap. If you can prophesy, that word is good. Visions is a little less, uh, a little less, well, we'll just say valuable. It's still valuable, but it's not quite as valuable as prophesying. And then dreaming dreams is another notch lower, right? So that's, that's how that goes. But who is doing it? The children, the sons and daughters are prophesying. The uh, young men are seeing visions, and the old men are dreaming dreams. So it, it, is, it is flipped. There is something, there's probably something more to be said about that. I'm not going to get into it. But it's interesting to note here that that is a kind of it's subversive, you could say. Um, moving down to verse 21. And it shall be that everyone who calls in the name of the Lord shall be rescued. Okay. So this is, at this point, is when Peter launches into his discourse. So he's, he's been quoting from Joel. And he stops here. And at this point, because he stopped here, we can we can know that the rest of what he's talking about has to do with this passage, this verse, this quote from Joel. Um, uh, the context here is repentance and calling on the name of Adonai during apocalyptic upheavals of the last days before the Messianic era. Those who sincerely repent, turn back to God and his ways, will be spared from God's wrath manifested in nations rising up against nations, calamity falling upon the earth, and signs and wonders and judgments. Okay. Uh, Yeshua had predicted the destruction of the temple, the city, and the entire congregation, and Peter was applying the same message to that current circumstance. Okay. When we think about salvation being rescued, we tend to think more about eternal uh, eternal things, right? But here, Peter, I believe, is talking specifically about something that is going to happen in the nation soon, like escape. You will be escaped. You will be spared from this coming destruction, this coming pain, this war, this attack uh, on the people, right? 
So there is an immediate, an immediate uh, context as well as an eternal spiritual context that we're more familiar with. So we need to be able to, to hold both of those in our hands, I think, as we live our lives, is that we'll be rescued in the, in the last days. But we can also be rescued and escaped from things that are now. That, that, that's something we should trust that God will do. Um, all right, moving down. Okay, there's chapter 2 of Acts is so full of so much. Last night at Arrow, um, uh, we were at the, uh, the Popiels, and, and I think Jerob said, he's like, man, this is like, you know, good luck with this chapter. This is like, this is a chapter that is so foundational for so many different denominations and ways of thinking and stuff. It's like, it's like landmines all over the place. Like, uh, you know, and I hadn't thought of it until last night when he said it. So <laughs> I had a hard time sleeping last night. Um, but so I'm, I'm going I'm to skip over a bunch of stuff and really only bring out a couple things. Um, but this is, again, this is something that could be, we could talk on for all day. Um, uh, so moving down, let's see. Moving on to two, uh, verse 32. Um, this Yeshua God raised up again, to which we are all his martyrous witnesses. Okay. Here, uh, the simple logic of Peter's interpretation of David's psalm, which is the, the verses 25 through 28, uh, and then a, a passage in 30 and 31. Peter's simple logic of interpretation is this. David predicts the Messiah will not suffer decay or be abandoned to death. That's one. Two, God raised Yeshua from the dead. Three, Yeshua fulfills David's prophecy about the Messiah. Four, Yeshua is the Messiah. Let me do that again. One, David predicts the Messiah will not suffer decay or or be abandoned to death, which we find in... David's first uh, quote, the, the psalm, uh, psalm of David in 25 through 28. God raised Yeshua from the dead. That's two. Three, Yeshua fulfills David's prophecy about the Messiah in verses 30 and 31. And four, Yeshua is the Messiah. So he's, he's, he's making all these connections here to these people. Okay. So then the question would be, where is he now? That, that's, that would be a question that might come up. Okay, so he's the Messiah. Where is he now? Peter anticipated this when he continued in his discourse, now using Psalm 110, verse 1. And it reads here, so he says, Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Ruach HaKodesh, he he has poured forth this uh, which you both see and hear. For it is not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself, the Lord, said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. So he has laid out, Yeshua is the Messiah. He did not, he was raised from the dead. He didn't suffer decay and wasn't abandoned to death. Um, and he's now at the right hand of God, just so that, just so that they know what is, what's going on. Um, Interestingly, the, the sages, the ancient rabbis, understand Psalm 1 as a prophecy about the Messiah, and so did Yeshua and his apostles. So referencing this psalm w- was as appropriate as anything else. Um, moving down to tw- uh, 37, verse 37. And when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? Um, oh, oh, I think it's important to note earlier. Um, the Where is it? Okay, well, I'll, I'll move on for, for now. Um, verse 37, yeah. Peter, Peter concludes his discourse here with an announcement to the entire house of Israel. He declared Yeshua to be Master and Messiah, adding dramatically what? Whom you 
crucified. <clears throat> Peter's skill here at weaving Psalms 16 and 110 together to make this profound declaration helped bring about a pierced heart, no doubt causing many to mourn upon realizing what they had done. But then, what does Peter do? Peter says to them, repent and let each of you be baptized for the name of Yeshua HaMashiach, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Ruach HaKodesh. So these people had just come to the realization that they had crucified the Messiah. Ouch, right? That's, that's got to that's gotta suck. <laughs> And any other religious leader would probably be like, you are just, you're done. You're done. You did, you did the worst possible thing, right? You crucified Messiah. But no, Peter said, all he says is, repent. Each one of you be baptized for the name of Yeshua, for the forgiveness of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, Ruach HaKodesh. Even the people who crucified Messiah can repent change their ways, turn back to God, and receive the Holy Spirit. Is that not super gracious and merciful? Man. The message of the gospel had not changed since John the Immerser. Repent, turn away from your sins, and turn to Adonai. The only difference here is the insertion in the name of or for the name of Yeshua, the Messiah. This is more of a sign of submission um, to the authority of Yeshua, entering into being his disciple. So if, you baptize, if you're baptized in the name of, you're baptizing yourself for the cause of him. You're, you're aligning yourself and your loyalty to him in your life. Now, that's, that's what that means. Peter assures the crowd that they too would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit if they repent of their sins and submit to Yeshua as Master and Messiah. It's really remarkable. <clears throat> Verse 39. Yeah, go ahead. I was thinking of, uh, we, learned, we were studying the word zealous and pulling it apart and how, and that ownership. Oh, yeah. And how that reminds me of, for the cause of the Messiah, how we take that ownership to be, you know, be loyal to him. Mm-hmm. And it just reminds me of how they all just go hand in hand, all these words. Yeah, it's the word uh, kor, kol, kuna. kuna. Um, I don't know. Yeah. I could be close. Yeah, I think we're both close, so that kind of makes us even closer. Uh, but yeah, jealous and zealous, it's about ownership. It's about like, like you have something, you have something that I want, or this is something that is mine and someone is trying to take it. Like it's the same, same word is used in both contexts. Yeah, yeah, it's really cool. Verse 39, for the promise is for you and your children, for all who are far off, as many as Adonai our God shall call to himself. Peter returns to the Joel passage here in this moment, uh, uh, at the end of this verse, there will be those who escape. So, um, sorry, this is, this is quoting from Joel 2.32. There will be those who escape, or who are saved, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. So he's referencing in this verse, uh, in this part of his discourse, the end of that passage of Joel. So he's kind of bringing it back to Joel at this point, after he's talked about um, uh, 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 repentance and and being escaped, um, being delivered. Verse 40, and with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, be rescued from this perverse generation. Now, we tend to think uh, of the gospel message, again, only in terms of eternal destinies. Um, But Simon Peter and the apostles were on a rescue mission. They were on a rescue mission to deliver as many lost sheep as they could from the more immediate national calamity that was predicted by Yeshua. Uh, And it's both, right? It can be both. Just remember that. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and there were added to that day about 3,000 souls. And of course, again, they're in the temple court where there's plenty of uh, pools nearby in which to, to baptize all these people. Yeah. 
Yeah, it is a doomed generation. Right, yeah. And, and we see this, we saw this too last week in, in verse, or chapter 1 when we we're talking about how there will be, a, there's an unworthy generation and a worthy generation. This was an unworthy generation evidenced by the fact that Yeshua came on a donkey, which was in the rabbinic literature long before that. It was known that if the Messiah returns on a donkey, uh-oh, <laughs> but if he's on a white horse, Yay! Right? So there, there are indicators that this was a doomed generation, the generation of Messiah. So, yeah. <clears throat> so that's what, that's another way of saying is doomed generation. Um, I, I, I didn't look specifically at that verse and parse it out uh, the, in, in the Greek, but I think that that's, that's accurate. Okay, so we've gone through the text. Now, there's a couple of things I want to share, and it is 1147, um, and I'll try to do this quickly. Um, try to do this quickly. Um, but... There are, so I did a menorah pattern of Shavuot as the giving of the Torah, what happened to the giving of the Torah, and Shavuot here, the giving of the, of the Holy Spirit. And uh, if you have a pen and paper and you want to write these down, write these down. Um, the point I want to make here is that these are the exact same day, right? Shavuot is Shavuot is Shavuot. What is happening, what happened at the giving of the Torah on Sinai is it, it so pictures and is reflected in what is happening in the giving of the Holy Spirit here in Acts, right? It is, there are two halves of the same thing, right? So there are six, uh, six things that I'm comparing. There may be more in there that you find, uh, but, but here, here are some of the things, right? So um, on the left-hand side, which will be your Shavuot uh, giving of the Torah, what they saw was torches, voices, and smoke. And it's important to know that the, the, the text says they saw voices. They saw voices. Remember how Lashon as a, as a word means tongue, which is a physical thing. It also means language, which is not a physical thing. So they saw voices. This is important. They heard a loud shofar, and also it says a sound. There is fire here in, in uh, giving of the Torah of God descending, coming down onto Sinai. There's fire. It comes down in fire. Languages. This isn't, in the, this, this isn't in Scripture, but this is in rabbinic literature that predates Messiah's uh, being on earth. There is reference to 70 languages. The giving of the Torah. And I'll, I'll, I'll share where, where, I, where, I, where that is found in the, in the, in the uh, rabbinic literature. The speaker is God. God is the one who speaks. The reaction is terror. <laughs> and in Exodus 32, 3,000 people fell for their sin of, 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 the, of the calf. On the right-hand side, this is your Shavuot giving of the Holy Spirit, the Ruach HaKodesh. They saw fire tongues distributing themselves. So we, can, we, we have some imagery of what that looked like, like little things of fire, maybe like bouncing and dancing around. That's, that's kind of been a, a traditional way of thinking of it, and maybe that's it, but, but maybe not. Fire tongues distributing themselves. However, however fire tongues or... or would, would do that. They heard violent rushing wind, wind, of course, being the same thing as ruach, but they felt no wind. They heard it, but felt, didn't feel it. The fire here was the tongues, of course, the languages, the, the, the lashana. There are 70 languages here presented. The speaker is Peter, their reaction is mixed. It is awe and disdain, mocking. And 3,000 people were added. Okay, so let me get to this other document here. Um, okay, how does one... How does one see a sound? How do you see a sound? 
How does one see a voice? Where do the torches come from? Because uh, in, the, in the verse, actually, it's in, in Exodus, uh, Exodus 20, 18, it literally says, and all the people saw the voices and the torches. That's a literal translation of the Hebrew. They saw the voices and the torches. Moses retells the story of hearing God's voice at Sinai in Deuteronomy. In 10 different passages, he reminds Israel that they had heard God's voice speak to them from out of the fire. Repeatedly, he says, you all heard the voice speaking from out of the fire. The disciples of Rabbi Yishmael, who was an ancient rabbi, explained the fiery voice of God that appeared like torches at Sinai with a verse from Jeremiah, Jeremiah 23, 29. It is not my wor- is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer which shatters a rock. Okay, so picture that hammer shattering a rock. The disciples of Rabbi Yishmael taught that the verse "and like a hammer which shatters a rock" means that just as a hammer is divided into many sparks, so too every single word that went forth from the Holy One at Mount Sinai, split up into 70 languages. So it was like a, right? So how these fires were distributing themselves was just, was like sparks coming out, right? And this is in, this is in the, uh, the Talmud. And this, this imagery predated Yeshua's time on, on earth. And so the disciples, certainly Luke, was familiar with this passage, this understanding of what had happened at Sinai. According to this reading, the voice of God at Mount Sinai divided into 70 voices speaking 70 different languages, and those voices looked like hot sparks flying forth from a hammer's blow on stone. The voice of God appeared to Israel like hot burning torches descending like sparks. In a similar tradition, the voice of God is depicted going forth from the mouth of God as flames of fire. This is in another portion of the, of the Talmud. The word went forth from the Holy One to the right hand of Israel and went around the camp of Israel, 18 mil by 18 mil, and the sound of it went from one end of the, of the world to the other. As it is said in Psalm 29, 7, the voice of the Lord hews out flames of fire the commandment itself went in turn to each of the Israelites and said to him, do you agree to observe me? Another ancient rabbi, Rabbi Yochanan, transmitted the tradition about God's voice speaking in all languages as well. Again, this is old, old stuff. According to Genesis 10, the nations of the world descended from 70 original families. The 70 tongues is idiomatic of all the languages of the nations. So the Torah says, so this, again, I, I'm bringing this up because this is the ancient rabbinic literature completely divorced or separate from what we understand is happening in Acts and in, in the Messianic community. This is an uh, ancient understanding. The Torah says, all the people saw the voices. Note that it does not say the voice, but the voice is. Wherefore, Rabbi Yochanan said that God's voice, as it was uttered, split up into 70 voices in 70 tongues, so that all the nations should understand. Rabbi Yochanan said, what is meant by the verse in Psalm 68, 12? The Lord announced the word, and great was the company of those who proclaimed it. Every single word that went forth from the Almighty divided up into 70 Tongues. So all this is describing the giving of the Torah. There are 70, 70, 3,000, fire, all this stuff that lines up with what we're also experiencing and seeing, not, not experiencing, what we're seeing here in Acts 2. Again, all that to say, it's the same thing. Pentecost is not it's just the day the Holy Spirit was given. It is, a day, it is a second half of a greater event that started at the giving of the Torah, the Word and the Spirit, right? And it mirrors each other, these things that are happening. We can imagine sparks coming down on the apostles, like a hammer striking stone coming down, and, and the 70 tongues, the 70 voices 
uh, proclaiming the word of God. Amazing, amazing stuff. So take that and do with it as you will. Um, yeah, go ahead. Um, I, th- mm, I, it doesn't ring a, right. There probably was uh, 70, 70, of course, represents, um, the, the entirety of, of the nation. 70 is also a number of perfection. So it's completeness, right? So if you send out 70, you're sending out everything. Um, so I, I don't know what that, best, if someone knows and can maybe find it, but. <laughs> Have some more sips of your coffee, <laughs> and maybe I'll, I'll pull it out. Um, okay, so the, the, only, the only thing I want to talk about, and we're running out of time, but this is more something I want uh, us to discuss, and you who are watching to discuss, um, is the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, what does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? What is the power of the Holy Spirit? What does the the Holy Spirit do? And I think this is an important question to ask because if we are, if, you know, we we believe that we are filled with the Holy Spirit, what does it mean or what does it look like when we lean into that power, when we we rely on the Spirit, when we ask, or when we ask for the Spirit to come and fill our day or our decision or whatever, what what does it look like? When we ask that question, I think well, we ask the question because we want to know when it is we've received it. I can't tell you how many times I have prayed for uh, God's spirit, spirit of wisdom, uh, for his spirit to move, not really knowing, because of the tradition I grew up in, not really knowing exactly what does it look like so that I can identify, oh, I, said, I prayed for it, and it came, and it happened. Praise God. Thank you. Right? So what I, want to, what I want to share with you is just a simple understanding that is kind of broad, but that's good, of what, it, of what it means. Simply put, the power, or the dunamis in, in the, the Greek, the power of the Spirit is that it fills you with the desire to do God's will. Okay? And that is a broad category. That can, it can manifest itself in different ways. But the power of the Spirit, the reason we need the Spirit, this helper, is to help us desire to do God's will. Okay? The Spirit is given. Yeah, but the, the power of the Spirit working in us is that we will desire to do God's will more. And then the fruit of the Spirit is all those that love, joy, peace. When we do God's will, then the fruit is good. But we need we need the spirit to desire it. Because how often how often do we not desire to do God's will? All the time. All the time. So that is the power or wonderful work of the influence of the Holy Spirit in you. And don't think don't think superpowers here. There are ways in which the spirit can manifest certain abilities in us. But the main point, the main purpose, the thing that is, the thing that is why it is a gift is that the Spirit fills us with the desire to do God's will. It is a motivating Spirit, an animating Spirit. When God breathed in the Ruach into, into Adam, it was an animating Spirit. It made him do, it made him be and live, right? So when we have the Spirit in us, when we, when we lean on that, the outcome we should expect and anticipate is that we will desire to do God's will. We will have confidence in it. We will be motivated to do it. We will not be fearful of the consequences in our world of following God's will. Does that, does that make sense? So it's a broad category, but it's a good bucket in which to place all different kinds of outcomes of what it means to be filled with the Spirit, right? That isn't specific. Because so, I think that what, what, what a lot of denominations do is they'll, they'll pick a specific outcome of what it means to be filled with the Spirit and use that as the measure by which you are filled with it. Right? We see it earlier in, in, in 2 where the Holy Spirit 
as the Spirit gave them utterance to speak in other languages. It wasn't everybody. It was just these, these, uh, these 11, these 12, right? But if we're using that as a metric to know if you're filled with the Spirit or not, that's, 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 that's backwards, right? You're, you're talking about fruit. We're talking about the fruit of the tree. When really, when we, we need to be talking about the tree. What kind of tree is it? The kind of tree it is is a tree that, that produces the desire to do God's will. Yeah. I would say yes. You can be filled with the Spirit and be fearful. We're human. The Spirit is a helper. The Spirit doesn't replace our will. The Spirit doesn't replace our conscious, our, our, our souls. The Spirit is there as, not, not, to, not to reduce it down too much, it is a, is a boost, right? It is, it, it is something within us that we can rely on to help us do the things that, we, that God wants us to do. You know, we have an understanding that... that Satan doesn't want you to do what he wants you to do. Satan wants you to do what you want to do, right? So the, the, the Spirit is then saying, okay, no, the Spirit is there to remind you this is what God wants you to do, right? And, this is, and, and, and to desire it, too, to have a heart for it. He'll write his Torah on our hearts where, where, we, where we have desire, right, where we love and, and, and anticipate. So. so I'll just finish with reading from um, Ezekiel. 36, Ezekiel 36, 22 to 36. And we've gone, we've gone way over, but this has been a good discussion. So thank you, those of you who are still sticking around. And I haven't even watched to see how many are watching. But um, Ezekiel 36, 22 to 36. Therefore say to the house of Israel, this is what the Lord God says. It is not for your sake, house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I show myself holy among you in their sight. So let's pause there. The nations will know that God is holy because of what he will do among his people, Israel. Right? This is important. For I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the lands, and I will bring you into your own land. Then I will, then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart, and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and bring it about that you walk in my statutes and are careful and follow my ordinances. And you will live in the land that I give to your forefathers so that you will be my people and I will be your God. Moreover, I will save you from all your uncleanness and I will call for the grain and multiply it and will not bring a famine on you. Instead, I will multiply the fruit of the tree and the produce of the field so that you will not receive again the disgrace of famine among the nations. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and bring it about that you walk in my statutes and are careful and follow my ordinances. There's a longer, bigger conversation that can be had about the Holy Spirit. <laughs> um, indeed, last night at, at our Erev, we had quite a long conversation about it because we all come from different traditions and different backgrounds uh, regarding how the Spirit, the Holy Spirit is talked about. Uh, and it's important to, to to have these conversations and to and to question our own understanding, and and praise God that we have a safe environment 
in our congregation in which to be able to do that um, honestly and genuinely. So, yeah. Ezekiel 36, uh, 22 to 36. I didn't read all of those verses, but it's in there. And I didn't, I didn't uh, have the actual verse numbers here, so I can't tell you which of those verses I emphasized. But you'll, you can find it. <laughs> Ezekiel 36, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Luke 10. Luke 10? 72. Okay. 72. What is, that is a, what is that, um, um, 72. Wow, that has some significance. Grant, where are you, Grant? (laughs) What's the significance of 72? I can't remember. Um, But, uh, okay, so that's all for today. Thank you all um, for watching, and um, I want to close in prayer. Uh, Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for um, uh, your word. Thank you for uh, a safe community in which to wrestle with it, to question it, to speak freely and not fear condemnation. Um, uh, And thank you for just how you have been revealing yourself to us, to the world. And we pray that you would um, enliven your spirit in us as we continue to be witnesses to the world and also to Israel, whom you love and whom you will bring about glorious things for your sake and for your name. We love them and help us to love them more uh, in the coming days. We pray all this in Yeshua's name. Amen.